Today, I'm excited because we are beginning a new teaching series on the Screwtape Letters. This is a spiritual classic from C.S. Lewis, and I forgot my copy, but I have this 1982 revised edition that I uh, <coughs> borrowed from my parents' bookshelf years ago. It looks really cool. It's super old. It's falling apart. But um, this book was actually first published in 1942. It's a very unique book. It's something very different from C.S. Lewis. He did write fiction. He wrote a lot of uh, apologetic type works. Uh, but in this book, he has created two fictional characters, Uncle Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood. And they are both demons trying to make a name for themselves in the world of demons. But before we get more into the book, let me just briefly bring us up to speed on the author. Many of you know C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. He was born in Belfast, Ireland in 19, no, 1898. But he lived a lot of his life in England. And from an early age, uh, Clive was actually called Jack by his friends and family. So I thought it'd be fun for us to call him Jack, which is a little easier than C.S. Lewis or Clive Staples Lewis. So I'm just gonna call him Jack for the duration of this, this series. Well, Jack was raised in a Christian home, but he actually abandoned his faith in his early teens and became an atheist. He experienced a lot of pain early in his life. He lost his mom at a young age. Um, there was a war. He studied at Oxford before he was drafted into the British Army, where he fought in the trenches in World War I. And if you've read anything about trench warfare in World War I, it's, it's some of the most horrible, horrible examples of just the horrors of war. And he was wounded by shrapnel and eventually demobilized, so he returned to Oxford where he graduated. And Jack later wrote about these horrors of war and the loss of his mother, and these were major factors that led to his atheism. But the writings of George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton, these were major influences on Jack's decision to return to the Christian faith. And also, many people know this, Jack was very close friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Tolkien was a devout Catholic. He loved the Lord, and his faith influenced the writing of, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So Jack and Tolkien had many, many, many conversations about God and life and faith and all these debates together until one fateful night in 1929, Jack writes about it in his autobiography called Surprised by Joy, really good book. But here's a quote. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, which is at Oxford, night after night feeling Whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> so Jack came back to the Christian faith very reluctantly, 
But over the years, his faith grew and developed. He continued conversations with his friend Tolkien, and eventually he became one of the most effective Christian apologists in all of church history. He committed to the Anglican Church instead of the Catholic Church, which very much disappointed Tolkien. <laughs> He's like, seriously, I invested all this time in you, and you become an Anglican? So Jack would go on to write several classic books, Chronicles of Narnia series. That's what C.S. Lewis is most known for. Uh, has anyone read the Space Trilogy? It is different, but it's pretty cool. There's some good stuff there. It's, it's definitely not on the level of the Chronicles of Narnia genius, but um, Mere Christianity is an apologetic book from, from Jack, and it is very, very good. The Great Divorce and the Screw Tape Letters just to name a few, some of his most popular books. And the book Mere Christianity was actually adapted from a series of BBC radio broadcasts. It was uh, during the periodic air raids of World War II, Jack went on the air, and he was this very calming, soothing, encouraging voice for the people in the UK. And then sadly, Jack died of kidney failure in 1963. I think he was 65 years old. And his legacy has continued for decades after his death. And his books are some of the most read Christian classics available today. So funny story about Mere Christianity, and then we'll get to the screw tape letters. Um, so I had, has anyone read the book Mere Christianity? And, oh, we got a lot of C.S. Lewis reading to do. Okay, a couple names here. Um, so I had this crazy professor in college. Everyone's had a crazy professor, right? I mean, every college needs at least one crazy professor. And uh, he had this absurd final exam for, for this uh, religion class that I was taking at, the, at a Christian university. So we had to read Mere Christianity. Okay, cool, fine, great book. But then we had to write a paragraph to summarize each of the 33 chapters. So, okay, that's not too bad. You're writing 33 paragraphs, and they had to be at least three sentences each. And he encouraged us to make them as short as possible. We're like, okay, didn't tell us why. And I, I'm a writer, and I, I can't just write three sentences. How do you summarize some of the most challenging apologetic theology in three sentences? So I, my paragraphs were huge. Um, but he said, your final exam is you need to memorize all 33 of your paragraphs and write them by hand from memory into a little notebook called a blue book in a one hour class period. And I about passed out. I, I went back through and I revised all my, my paragraphs, tried to get them as short as possible. I pulled so many all-nighters that semester just trying to cram so many sentences into my brain. I mean, that's about 100 sentences to memorize. Um, and uh, so this fateful class period, I hadn't slept in like 30 hours and I'm just chugging, you know, energy drinks and, and uh, I'm just writing like a fiend and my hand hurts and, you know, this hour is up and I've made it through about 24 paragraphs. <laughs> but he gave me a B. So I'm like, okay, fine. Most absurd exam I've ever had. Anyway, back to the screw tape letters. So this book is a series from a fictional character, a series of letters from a fictional character named Screw Tape. And we have some illustrations here from William Pappas, very cartoony. But Screw Tape is a higher ranking demon, and he's advising his nephew, Wormwood, this very young and inexperienced tempter. That's his job. He's been tasked with leading a human man 
the patient is what they call him, away from the enemy, which their enemy is God, Father God in heaven, uh, and instead Wormwood is trying to lead him towards Satan, which they call our father below. So, you know, very interesting play on words there from, from Jack. But throughout this whole book, his writing style is very tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of goofy. It's meant to be a little humorous. It's not meant to be frightening or, or glorifying of demons at all. And yet, Jack is still covering some very deep stuff here, some real-world examples of, of human nature at play and how we can be tempted and distracted and deceived. Jack is kind of opening up for us the, the playbook of the enemy trying to attack us. And that's why this book, it just blew my mind when I read it years ago in college. And I really encourage you to pick up a copy and read through it. Um, but this brings me to our theme verse for this whole series, which is Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So that's our theme verse for this whole series, and that's really what this book is trying to do, is to create awareness for the readers that there is an enemy out there working against us, and they are conniving, and they are deceptive, and they are trying to distract us, and deceive us, and lie to us, but the awareness of that helps us so that we can take a stand, we can arm ourselves with the armor of God. And one thing, you know, I, I want to stress this as much as I possibly can, if we have Jesus in us, we have no reason to fear the enemy. The enemy has no power over us if we have Jesus in us. Christ is victorious. But even as Paul warns in this passage in Ephesians, we need to take our stand against the devil's schemes. This is a battle. We are in a battleground. And that's one of the reasons why I love this book, The Screwtape Letters. So in a preface to this book, Jack clarifies he's not trying to establish a proper demonology, uh, which is the study of demons in the context of scripture, demonology. Uh, he has instead created kind of this fictional representation of a bureaucratic demon hierarchy, which they actually call the lowerarchy. <laughs> Again, another clever play on words. Um, so Uncle Screwtape here, He's very formal. He's writing these letters like some kind of bureaucrat to his incompetent nephew. They're both trying to stay out of trouble from their superiors. And as we'll soon discover as we work through this book, underneath this air of courtesy and politeness, all of these demons are nasty and they're just consumed with greed and their own selfish desire for power and control. There's nothing redeeming about them. There's nothing good in them. There's no real loyalty. You know, even between uncle and nephew, we'll, as we'll see towards the end of the story, things get messy. And, and these, these very caricature-like uh, illustrations done by a cartoonist named William Pappas, and he used to draw political cartoons for The Guardian, um, which is the paper that originally published the Screwtape Letters before they were published as a book. 
So it's important for us to remember that any artistic depiction of angels or demons, it is simply that, an artistic depiction. There is very little information in the Bible about the true form of angels. There's even less in the Bible about what demons might look like. Because part of the issue is that angels and demons are spirit beings. They are spirits. And, of course, there are times in Scripture when angels seem to take on human form. Lots of examples. Let me share a few with you. So in Genesis 18, God and two angels appeared to Abraham in a human form. Genesis 19, two angels visited Lot in Sodom. They appeared as men. They looked like men to the people of Sodom. And then in Joshua 5, it says that a man with a sword drawn was standing before Joshua, and he identified himself as the commander of the Lord's army. So he appeared to Joshua as a man with a sword. And then in the Gospel of Mark, Mary Magdalene and the others went to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty, and they found a man in a white robe who told them that Jesus is not here, he is risen. That was an angel appearing in the form of a man. And then there's also examples in Scripture of angels appearing in some kind of otherworldly form, uh, like the seraphim that Isaiah saw in the throne room of heaven. It was a vision God gave him. He said they had six wings each. And then Ezekiel's description of angels is very bizarre. He said they have four faces and four wings each, so kind of very fever dreamish, uh, though still human-like, he says. And then the Gospel of Matthew describes an appearance of angels as being bright like lightning. So lots of, lots of variety in the description of angels. But when it comes to demons, we do not have examples in Scripture of them appearing in some kind of human form. We do have examples of them possessing humans and possessing animals even. There is no mention in Scripture whatsoever of demons being able to take the form of a man or some kind of physical form on their own. Demons are spirit beings. So any artistic rendering of a demon like this, it's just pure imagination. That's all it is. And uh, there's nothing biblical about these. I mean, they're entertaining, kind of sanitizing demons a little bit, but um, there's nothing biblical. And Jack even mentions this in the preface of his book. He, he talks about why are demons given bat wings and angels given birds wings? It's probably because men seem to like birds more than bats. And that's really it. There's nothing in the Bible, you know, about these, these artistic renderings of, of demons. In the Garden of Eden, Satan appears to Eve as a serpent. In Revelation, Satan is described as a dragon. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Hmm. Demons are fallen angels, but they do not seem to have the ability to appear as men like the heavenly angels do. And then in Revelation, John describes evil spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon looking kind of like little frogs. But again, Revelation is, is this apocalyptic vision. It gets its own genre. It's very strange, bizarre vision that John received, full of symbolism. So sometimes we don't really have clarity about, you know, what, what demons might look like. Jesus encountered a lot of demons in his ministry, and none of them could stand before his authority. They were 
terrified of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of Matthew says that many demon-possessed people were brought before Jesus and he drove out spirits with a word, a word, and they were gone. And then John writes this in his first letter. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. Okay, let's finally dive into Screwtape's first letter to Wormwood. We're not going to get very far today because I'm going to take us on this massive tangent before we wrap up. <laughs> I'm not going to read these letters in full. Uh, it would just take too much time. So I'm just going to pull quotes that I think make interesting touch points for discussions and principles that match with, with Scripture, good lessons for us. But I really would encourage you, get yourself a copy of Screwtape Letters, read along as we work through this. I think it will be, this will be a much richer experience for you. You can find a used copy of this book online for like five, six bucks. So Screwtape begins each of his 31 letters to Wormwood with the same opening line, which has now become very iconic. He says, my dear Wormwood. And it's interesting, the name Wormwood is the name of a fallen star in Revelation chapter 8. And uh, in Revelation 8, this star falls and it bitters the waters leading to people dying from drinking the water. It's this falling star that ruins the water so people can't drink it. And it's also this bitter herb that's mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's become this symbol of poison, death, suffering, bitterness. So it's a very fitting name for this little demon guy. Uh, the name screw tape doesn't really mean anything. Screw tape was derived from a combination of several words that, that Jack came up with, like Scrooge, tapeworm, you know, nasty things, red tape to kind of get that totalitarian bureaucracy feel. In Screwtape's first letter, we learn about Wormwood's patient, which is the man that he's trying to tempt towards Satan. Uh, but right off the bat, Screwtape is already calling him naive <laughs> because Wormwood has been trying to lead his patient into arguments with his materialist friend. And he's not talking about materialism in the sense of this guy really likes to buy stuff. He's talking about philosophical materialism, which is a form of atheism, where they don't believe the spiritual realm exists. All they believe in is physical matter, material matter. There's no spiritual realm, there's no God, no angels, no demons, etc. Just the matter in this universe, and that's it. But Screwtape tells Wormwood that argument is dangerous. Hmm, here's a quote from the book. By the very fact of arguing, you awaken the patient's reason, and once it is awake, who can foresee the result? And I think this is just such an interesting insight from C.S. Lewis here. Demons are afraid of the power of human reason. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit today. Because God has created each one of us with the intellectual ability to discover truth about this life. There are people that discover God simply through the human reason that he gave them. Which is amazing to me in the midst of all the deception, 
all the false religions, all the false teaching in the world, there are still people that can be guided by God's hand using their intellectual abilities. And that is why demons fear human reason. The truth is on the side of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, and for Jack, our friend, this was actually his path back to Christ, was argument with his buddy Tolkien. It was argument and reason and his intellectual capacity. And he was stuck for years, right? He was stuck. And, in, you know, the intellectual is often why atheists get stuck and they just can't accept that a God would exist, etc. So C.S. Lewis was stuck in this struggle for years. Um, and our human reason is not perfect, right? We can be deceived. We can get stuck. Human reason has been marred by the curse of sin and we shouldn't elevate it more than than uh, is, is wise. We can never fully comprehend God in his ways in this life simply because our brains are finite. You know, we are born, we have an end, and everything in this world has a beginning and an end except for the infinite creator. And there's something about that that just is difficult for us to, to shove into our very finite brains, this very paradoxical, infinite, amazing creator. So there is a limit to what human reason can handle, and that's why scripture says, your ways are higher than my ways, too lofty for me to attain. But we have this promise from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We are made in the image of God and there is something in each one of us, even if we've never opened a Bible or heard about Jesus, there is something in each one of us that's like on a hook and we're just being pulled towards God. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So argument is actually how Jack came back to the faith. Countless hours reading books and arguing with his dear friend, Tolkien. And this awakened a deeper level of reason in Jack. And, and slowly over time, the Holy Spirit was working on him, breaking down his defenses. And eventually it just clicked. And he realized God is real. God loves me. You know, God used Tolkien and Chesterton, these intellectual men, to restore Jack to the faith. And God could use any one of us. You don't have to feel like you're some brainiac like Tolkien. God could use any one of us here today to plant seeds of truth in others. Even those that are stuck in just the deepest hole of atheism. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. This is a commission for everyone, all of us. You don't have to feel like you're super smart. Just do a little bit of research. You know, it's important for us to study the Bible, know the basics of the Christian faith, so that we can engage in conversation with people. You don't have to know everything. It's okay to say, you know what? I haven't researched that. Let me go ask my pastor, or let me go do some research, or let me ask my super smart friend who spends you know, five hours on YouTube watching you know, theology and apologetics videos. But the more that we study, the more that we understand, the more we can help others along in their journey to understanding God and understanding the faith. You know, a great way to start, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. 
Another great classic. So today, you're all going to go home and you're going to order screw tape letters, right? And you're also going to order Mere Christianity. I'm being very, very um, optimistic right now. You know, it's funny. I often mention like, yeah, you know, we record all our sermons or on our website. You know, go listen to it. And I'm, I'm, I've, I'm fully aware that probably nobody does that. So if you ever do go on our website and listen to old sermons, please let me know. I would be thrilled. <laughs> but also check out some of my favorite apologists, William Lane Craig. Maybe you've heard that name, William Lane Craig. Amazing man, so full of so much wisdom. I don't agree with everything he says, but he has so much good wisdom uh, about the faith and how to engage with people in apologetic conversations. And then also J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace, he used to be a cold case detective, and he's got a podcast where he uses the same cold case detective processes to investigate the Christian faith and the Bible. And it's just so fascinating. It is so convincing. It is powerful. And he actually, J. Warner Wallace grew up Mormon, and part of his uh, focus is reaching out to Mormons and explaining to them why it's false and that Christianity is the only way. So check them out. They both have great podcasts, blogs, YouTube. Look up those names. Human reason can be a difficult path for some people to find Jesus. Sometimes if someone gets stuck on an intellectual path, God can reach them through another path. Like they'll just wake up and have this dream, this vision from the Lord. I had a friend that was struggling with drugs and he was an atheist. And then just one night, just boom, God just encountered him in this incredibly powerful way, undeniable way, completely changed his life. So somebody was praying for him. But even though some people get stuck, Human reason is still a viable path to find God and discover faith. You don't have to turn your brain off to be a Christian, as they say, because truth is on God's side. Jesus is the truth. It's the enemy that has to use deception. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. The evidence is all around us. I mean, just look around. I mean, look at this incredible world we live in. Obviously, there's darkness and there's evil and there's brokenness. But look at the stars in the sky. Look at the trees and the animals, the ocean, the rivers. I, I like to go to the beach and get some beach therapy, as I call it, and just stare at the beach. And I'm just filled with wonder, like, wow, God made this beautiful thing. The glory of God is everywhere. And it's sending this message loud and clear. There is a God. There is a God who made all of this. And then in the Psalms, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So one of my favorite questions for atheists, and maybe you can stash this one away if you're ever in a conversation with an atheist friend. One of my favorite questions is, how did we get here? How did we get here? How did this world get here? How is it possible that we have life? I mean, look up something called the anthropic principle. It'll blow your mind. Basically, this world we live in is so fine-tuned that if we were just like 
one, one degree off in our earth rotation, life would not exist. There's stuff like that. Or things that, that break down into this, you know, uh, molecular physics and stuff. It's just amazing. If there were certain forces that hold atoms together that were just a tiny fraction of a bit greater or lesser, life would not exist. Everything would just crumble and fall apart. And there's so much evidence of a creator that put everything together. But, you know, an atheist might respond with the go-to answer, which is, well, we evolved from microorganisms in a primordial soup 3.8 billion years ago, and that is the theory of evolution. And there are some Christians that accept evolution. There are many Christians that don't. There are some theistic evolutions, evolutionists, that's what they're called, theistic evolutionists, if they're a Christian that still affirms evolution. There are some that I respect, people like John C. Lennox, Francis Collins, who was the leader of the Human Genome Project. But I will say, for me personally, I'm not convinced by the theory of evolution. I've, I've done some studying, I've really tried, and there was one point in college where I thought maybe somebody had won me over, but then the more I research it, there's just so many holes in the theory, and there's just so much that just doesn't add up for me. Um, I mean, just look at your body. Look at your hand. Look at this thing. It's incredible. It, it was not made by accident. You know, the human eye, the human eyeball, if you just look up a YouTube video about the human eye, it's just incredible. It just blows your mind. It could not possibly have evolved from a microorganism in a soup, no matter how much time you allowed. Obviously, I'm just giving you my opinion today, but at least not on its own without a divine creator as the driving force. And that's what theistic evolutionists would say is that, well, God did it. It's like, okay, well. But look up something called, it's a book called Darwin's Black Box by Dr. Michael B. He. Uh, he's a leader in what's called the intelligent design movement in biology, where they basically just see these incredible things in human biology, something called a bacterial flagellum. It, there's just so much complexity. It's called irreducible complexity. And basically, the, Darwin's theory just breaks down when, when you test it with these incredible complex miracles of the human body. I mean, there's so much about the brain, the human brain, that we don't understand Incredible stuff. Anyway, so aside from that, we, that's another rabbit hole we could go down some other day, but my, my response to an atheistic evolutionist is that evolution is not an origin theory. So it claims to be the origin of species, right? But it doesn't answer this question, where did all matter and energy in the universe come from? And they might say, well, the Big Bang. That's another theory. It's also not an origin theory. A lot of people didn't know this. The Big Bang is not an origin theory. So there's a point in the research with the Big Bang. If you extrapolate all the data, something called redshift and cosmic radiation, which is really interesting if you want to research it someday, and they, they take it all back to this one point where they believe that the universe exploded into being 13.8 billion years ago. You know, a lot of Christians are just like, was that the moment where God said, let there be light? I don't know. It's a study for another day, but there is something that researchers call Planck's wall. Planck's wall. It's when they extrapolate all this data back to what they think is this point where all of matter and energy originated, but then the, the laws of physics just break down and science just becomes fiction and speculation. So the tool of science and observation and math and, and the human reason, it hits a wall and it cannot progress further without dropping science and becoming fiction or speculation.
You know, and, and you'll read about stuff like multiverses and stuff you'd think you're reading in a Marvel movie script, not a science textbook. It's just like, what are we doing right now? What is happening? You know, but it's not an origin theory. It doesn't answer the question, where did all the matter and energy come from? What was the cause of this? From where does this come from? Or as Christians might ask, from who? Because we believe there is an eternal being that created this universe. He is the uncreated one, the only uncreated one that created all things. And there are endless philosophical debates you can get to about creatio ex nihilo versus nihilo nihil feet. Um, I'm not gonna get too deep into all that. But scripture shows us God is the answer. Wherever you land in all the science debates and all that stuff, there's one thing we can all agree on. Scripture tells us God is the creator. God made it all. God has always existed. He is the source of the universe and all life within it. So that's the end of our um, very long tangent. I know we didn't get very far in Screwtape's first letter, but we're going to cover more next week. But let me finish today with a story, and then we're going to receive communion together. So years ago, I met a guy named Matthew. He was from Birmingham, England, and he was completing a ministry internship program at the Vineyard Church Biz and I were serving at in Baton Rouge. And great guy, amazing testimony. He was a staunch atheist when he was in college, like so stubborn, just completely set in his ways. And not just like, yeah, I don't believe that, but like he would actively try to argue with Christians, try to, to tell them how dumb they are and how deceived they are. And he had this college roommate that was a Christian and they would debate a lot, you know, and his roommate was not like the super smart guy, but he would just ask good questions and challenge Matthew. And Matthew felt like he was always winning these debates and, you know, stupid Christians, they don't know anything. But, you know, his roommate, not a good apologist, was still full of love, was still genuine. And there were still seeds of truth being planted in his roommate's heart. And then one day, Matthew's roommate was just kind of getting tired of being told he was an idiot. So he said, look, have you ever tried going to church and just talking to God? Have you ever tried that? Do a science experiment for me. Go to this church, go to this prayer meeting tonight, and then just try to talk to God and tell me what happens. If you get nothing, I will leave you alone. I will never talk to you about my faith ever again. <laughs> So Matthew took him up on this challenge. He went to this church, this prayer meeting, and everyone was just sitting there praying in silence. And, and Matthew just closed his eyes. And earnestly, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this a shot. I will try. He put his, his elevated human intellect on the shelf for a minute. And he said, God, if you're real, show me. And immediately, Matthew had this powerful undeniable experience of God's presence just washed over him and he felt warmth and love and peace and purpose like he had never felt before. God is real and God loves me. What did Jeremiah say? If you seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find him. Amen.